Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. To the analyst inside cricket, we've been uh, taking a little pause for a couple of weeks, but we're back, Simon and me, uh, together. Just as England are heading off on another tour to Sri Lanka, it seems it like they've only been back. It seems like you've only been back a, a few days from South Africa, and off they go again. Well, I have only been back for, for a few days from South Africa, and off they go again. I'm not going to Sri Lanka for a, a couple of weeks, but it just make you realise how much the players are away. Now, not everyone is away all six months or so of the winter but there's been a lot of cricket this winter and a lot of players have played an enormous amount of it but off they go again World Test Championship points at stake stake, with England needing to you know climb up that table and put pressure on the top two they've slipped down to fourth place now having climbed to third because of the New Zealand defeat of India so we'll look at that series in a bit and I suppose we should just also say in a way the fact that England are off again goes back to the podcast that, that I did a couple of weeks ago about the mental health yeah. of cricketers and several of the people, the, the contributors to that programme, saying that it's the stress of constantly being away, constantly on tour, constantly living out of suitcases and not only playing but training with your teammates, being kind of under scrutiny even on your sort of days when you're not actually playing. And I know uh, Crick Info did a... or In fact, every year they do kind of who is the busiest cricketers yeah. in the world. Joe Root is always up there in, like, 140 days of, of cricket. And it might not sound that much, but then if you add all those training days and all those uh, travel days as well, it's it's around about 300 days away from home. So you've only got 60 days, actually, in your home in a whole year, which is it's, it's pretty hard. Yeah, 60 days of normal life a year. And, and even those days will be sponsors... Um, assignments, selection meetings, promotional stuff. You know, how often he actually sees his little boy and his wife, I yeah. don't know, except I suppose they can go on tour with They him. do come out. I, mean, I said to Josh Butler in, in an interview just before we left South Africa, he made some runs in the last 
T20 and match of England. One dramatic game, really exciting game. A fantastic series that was, that T20 series. I know we haven't had a chance to uh, discuss it, but it was a wonderful series, full of thrilling cricket and, and lots of attacking play. But anyway, he made a half century in the last match. And he, of course, he hasn't had a, a great time over the winter. He struggled in the South African Test Series. And I said to him, what do you do now? Do you go back and do you, you, know, do you work on your batting before you go to Sri Lanka? And he said, no, I just need to get away from cricket, you know, and then come back and start playing cricket again once I get to Sri Lanka. And you can understand that. You know, some players, I think, would have gone away and, and, and practised and perhaps worked on their game, but you do need to get away from it. They play so much cricket. You do have to switch off, and switching off and not playing is almost as important as practising. Yeah, and someone like Butler, of course, his batting has been under the microscope so much, and you, you're ending up tinkering with your game just a little bit to try and eradicate slight flaws there's so much analysis isn't there that you can be almost paralyzed by it so actually i can quite see why you just need to chill out and go and play football or something just for a bit not football they get injured playing football <laughs> <laughs> yes that's true but the, the, what they have done is they've given themselves a bit of time to prepare for the first test match it really sapping conditions in Sri Lanka. The first test is two weeks on Thursday. England are arriving on uh, Tuesday in uh, Sri Lanka. So they've given themselves two and a half weeks basically to prepare for the first test match, which, you know, seems, I don't know, I'm, I thought about it really, but it seems like quite a long time to prepare for the, the first test. It's only a two match series, of course. And vital games for them you, you feel that Sri Lanka are vulnerable but also they they could be quite handy in their, their home conditions definitely and I think it would be a very different series from the one that was played last time with perhaps the pitches not necessarily offering as much spin as last time and the weather as well was well, yeah. absolutely appalling wasn't it in fact the one day series I think was the weather was appalling when you were in Sri Lanka wasn't it it was raining yeah. all the time yeah, it rained this is a different time of year so yeah. the March weather should be decent in Sri Lanka well it'll be fine in terms of you know, dryness but it'll be sapping it'll be high humidity hot. really hot I think Sri Lanka is the hottest place mm. I've ever been I agree it's well, you've played there, haven't well, you? Well, i played there, and actually yeah. I used to pour liquid over me rather than drink it, because I just literally was so hot. Yeah. And that was a stupid thing to do, because pouring sticky sweet liquid attracts all sorts of insects. <laughs> so I remember once looking down at my trousers, actually, and they were covered in red ants, right. where the sort of sticky orange juice had sort of tailored to my the bottom of my trousers, and I had a lot of red ants running up my legs. Mm. So that's another little... Thing to, to deal with. They have snakes around the edge of the ground as well, don't they, they in Sri Lanka? They, they lots do. of little things to deal with. Yeah, lots of things to avoid, I would say. Yeah. I remember playing a game of volleyball and the ball went over into the bushes somewhere and then suddenly I saw something whipping away. It was a snake that had been dislodged by the volleyball. Nice. Not, not nice, not nice you, at probably, all. You probably don't like snakes. No, I don't. Much, do I'm not, not keen on snakes. But I'm looking forward to going to Sri Lanka. It would be an interesting test for, for England because of the conditions, because I think it will be a bit different from last time. And I don't see the, the potency in their spin attack quite the same as they had last time. They had Moen, they had Rashid, they had Leach. I mean, Jack Leach has had a really tough winter. Uh, illness in New Zealand, mm. struggled in, in South Africa, has got reportedly got a, a slight thing. calf problem. Mm-hmm. So, you know, hasn't bowled as much as he'd like to have done mm. over the winter. And it says there's a lot resting on, on him and, and Don Bess, who's a relative novice, mm. and then Matt Parkinson, if he can get into the side. So, I, I don't see the England spin threat quite in the same way as, as as the last time they were there. And also, there's a chance it'll be flatter pitches, isn't there? Because yeah. they made the mistake of making turning pitches before on every spinner turned the ball, however yeah. good or bad you were. Yeah. So that gave England the opportunity to, to force, their, that force the initiative. 
this time you'll need good spin to be able to exploit the conditions. I think Bess showed some yeah. good signs in, in South Africa. I mean, he wasn't a particularly good bowler when he first played for England a couple of years ago, but he's definitely improved. And he's not the finished article by any means, but a, a combination of him and Jack Leach, if he can keep the control, will, would be decent, I think, with a Sri Lanka side that are, that are evolving themselves. Somerset against Sri Lanka, it'll be. <laughs> won't it? It yeah, will be. Yeah. Bess, Bess and Leach. And Bess was saying the other day that, that actually when Leach has been successful, he's sort of not been in the side. And when he's been successful or done well, been to the fore, Leach, you know, Leach has not been in the side. It's not often that they've been able to play together. For England mm. you know, to be the the focal point for for England together, so yeah, big big test for, for both of those. But but the key, of course, is to make runs. Yeah. If England make enough runs, it almost doesn't matter who you got to bowl. If you've got people who can just keep it tight, mm. wickets will fall, scoreboard pressure. So England's emphasis will be on trying to make big runs. That was the uh, the blueprint for winning those Test matches in South Africa, and that's what they've got to apply. Again, this time, they've gone down to fourth place, England, in the championship, as I said. New Zealand sneaking up to third. It's quite a sort of strange-looking... Well, more than sneaking out. It was a little bit unfair, isn't well, it? Well, I say they, sneaking... They've just beaten the world number one team they, comprehensively they, they, in they, two test matches. I, I know, but they have only won three tests out of seven, whereas England have won five mm. out of nine, and mm. they're 40 points behind. Mm. It's a, that sort of strange, at the moment, anomaly of the World Test Championship, which is sort of gradually evening up over time because you get more points available pro rata for a two-test series mm. than you do for a five-test series. Well, well, that's the point about England's series in Sri Lanka, actually. It's, it's really right you know, on each test match, isn't it? The focus on each test match is, is really intense. It, it's not over the series like in South Africa where you have a chance to come back. It's right, you've got to do it in that first test match because that test match is worth 60 points in the in the World Test Championship. So England have the chance to take up 120 points mm. in the same way that New Zealand have just done against India. Which so I think would, if, if they get those, if they did get those, it would take them to round about 260. So sort of closer mm. to India at the moment, there's a big gap, India, Australia and the rest. Mm. But it will just even that gap up a little bit, especially with India now picking up no points from that series. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I don't mind the focus on you know, specific test matches or two test match series. But it's like, oh, you, yeah, it's no real contest over two test matches. Well, I think it is. I think it's you know, it's about it's really making every single day of the series count. You know, I suppose yeah, we've been so used to in the past having four or five match series, you get the chance to come back, and that's fascinating in itself. You know, the Ashes last. Summer, for example, and and the series in South Africa, where England were able to come back. But there's also something about you know making the day count, really you know, seizing the initiative in that in that first Test match. Something that England have not really been that good at in in in, in recent years. So you know, I think that's a, it's a different sort of challenge. It's a more intense challenge, but mm. I, I don't think it's any it, it, it's it's diminished by the fact that it's just two Test matches. It's interesting this general home advantage influence. If you look at uh, Obviously, India, who always win their test matches at home. Mm. Australia annihilated New Zealand at home. Mm. And now New Zealand yeah. have annihilated India at home. And it, it, it's, they weren't really... They were mismatches, weren't they, in the end? Yeah. In, India just couldn't get any runs. Well, the, the pitch in Christchurch... I've been watching some of the pitch in Christchurch. It was green and it swung. Trent Bolt uh, today was getting the ball to swing. It was overcast. The pitch was yeah. green and it was swinging. I was <clears throat> memories of that yeah. time when he bowled England out for about sixty. Yeah. Or was um, it eighty? Eighteen. Fifty-eight. Fifty-eight. 58. Yeah. yeah. God. 
And, and that really did swing. Yeah, and you got those that huge contrast between playing in India, where pitches are dry and slow, and that those Indian batsmen are so used to those conditions and dominating those conditions, and then they've got something completely different when they go to mm. New Zealand. It's a bit like when when they come to England as well, where the ball seams around, nips around, and it really does test that technique. And, and we've had um, you know Raul Dravid and others, haven't we, on this program mm. in the past mm. talking about. India trying to conquer the world in Test cricket yeah. and what chances have they got? And he's always said actually that in white ball cricket, more chance because in red ball cricket, the ball does move so much more and it's hard, well, especially away from home, especially away from home, and and yeah, especially in England and, and New Zealand. And it's hard getting those young batsmen to apply themselves. And you know what he he always loves that phrase. Uh, I, I, I love a good leave. I'd love a good leave. I, I, why doesn't a modern batsman love a good leave? Mm. I used to love a good leave. You don't get too many leaves from the Pritvi Shaws and Agarwals of the modern game, do you? Opening the batting for India, but you have to. Otherwise, you don't survive. And Kohli was was quite adamant in his press conference after the series that they weren't positive enough, the Indians, in their defence mm. as much as they were in attack. You know, you ha- you can be positive in defence by deliberately leaving the ball and being very clear in your mindset. I'm not going to play anything which is a foot outside off stump. Being very, very clinical, and that's what they weren't. Well, as a bowler, if someone leaves well, that must be really frustrating, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, and then you try over hard to bowl straighter and, and overcompensate, and you bowl leg stump, and you bowl our volleys, or easy balls to put away on the leg side. Mm. So... He does. I, I mean, th- there was a player a long time ago now, actually, but John Wright, opening batsman for New Zealand and Derbyshire, and his simple philosophy about batting was, know where your off stump is, leave everything in the first ten overs, mm. just outside off stump, make bowlers bowl to your strength on the legs. I mean, Alistair Cook, another one. But, but Wright was brilliant at that. He hardly ever played a shot on the offside, and he just hit everything on the leg side, and bowlers do overcompensate. So if you can be really disciplined, that's the thing that separates you know, the real test stars from everyone else, the, the sort of dilettantes, because you know, if you have to be really disciplined. I think Root is gradually getting there now. He doesn't really like leaving the ball, does he? You know, he, he likes flirting with those shots, looking for those runs on the offside behind square, opening mm. the face. But I think I've seen just one or two little signs of the last, well, the last few tests in, in South Africa where he really did apply his discipline around the off stump. And maybe, you know, he's now going to sort of go on the upward path to prosperity again. Did you hate bowling at John Wright? For that reason, um, he was a good leader? Yes, I did, because uh, it, was, it was frustrating, actually. Um, you, you would try too hard to make... You, you'd see that very, very fine judgment of a ball just outside of something. He was left-handed, so you know I was looking to try and swing it back to him. And if it was just starting too, a little bit too wide outside off, he'd leave it alone, and it might just you know, shave the, the offside off stump by a couple of inches, two, three inches, and you'd think, oh, you know, that was close. Mm. Right, I'll get another one a bit straighter. And inevitably, mm. you started a bit straighter and it swings into his pads four runs or mm. two or something. So it, it is very frustrating bowling at those sort of batsmen, and especially when you see how very disciplined and regimented they are, because you can't seem to get under their skin. How do you think England will get on in 
Sri Lanka. We talked about last time England winning 3 0 with that, sort of, you know, what feels like to me a, a stronger mm. spin attack. I, I mean, the, obviously, Sibley has trouble against spin, left arm spin, because he, he comes across the ball. I think that he's got good discipline. But he's definitely got a weakness outside off stump. Uh, he's got to really apply himself to to leave the ball. And I, I would try and get him LBW early on as well. I'd try and get him sort of across the crease and then pry, try and fire one up quick enough uh, at middle and leg and try and get him playing across it to LBW. Whether the Sri Lankans have got good enough bowlers to exploit that, I don't know. Zach Crawley, I think, has a similar issue with sort of playing at balls outside off stump and getting drawn to playing them. He doesn't really move his feet well. I don't think he re- re- uses reach very well. So th- those two, I think, are a little bit vulnerable. The rest of the batting order, well, from there, you know, Root, Stokes, Ollie Pope, fantastic. Mm. They're as good as anyone in the world, those three. So, you know, provided those openers can just protect them against a new ball... And obviously, we don't know quite how Ollie Pope will go against spin, but those three guys are absolute class. And Ollie Pope could be the one-time, all-time leading run scorer for England if he. It's a long shot. That it's a bit of a kind of big call, but I mean, he's got no pressure. He's got the game. Yeah. He's definitely got the game to yeah. to to be as good as Root. Mm. Well, he started extremely well, hasn't he? He's, he's shown a lot of promise. Uh, very early on, he's been picked at a young age, and you know, generally speaking, those players that go on and play 100 Test matches, they often make their debut at sort of 20, uh, 21. You, you don't see many people go on a really, really successful career. Who, you know, get picked at 25, 26. So you, it, it's generally the class players are the ones that get picked young. You know, the likes of Root and Cook and and, and you have Gower. to get picked young mm. to make that mm. quantity of runs because if you st- if you're only starting at 26, 27, mm. you've lost sort of four or five years of you know, making maybe five, six hundred runs in a in a calendar year. So you're going to be well behind the rest. I mean, I did a, a little bit of an analysis on the greatest run scorers of all time and when they scored their first hundred. And most of them scored their first hundred in their first five to six innings mm. in Test cricket under the age of 23. Pope was the second youngest, I think, mm. for England, wasn't he, to, to make a hundred. Cook was the youngest and Pope was just a, a, a touch older than Cook when he made his first Test 100. So, you know, very impressive. Uh, big, big future. Yeah. Well, that's that's the men. Uh, World Test Championship points. Uh, congratulations to New Zealand. England looking to take 120 points, if possible, from uh, Sri Lanka. Uh, the women are involved in the World T20 down under in Australia. It seems to me the tournament has got more coverage than mm. than ever before. It's growing. Mm. Uh, the interest is there. It's growing. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's great. I, I watched the first game, actually, the, uh, Australia-India, yeah. and you know, brilliant crowd. Yeah. Uh, th- there was more people at that game. It was at the Sydney Showgrounds, which is a big bash venue. It's where the Sydney Thunder play. And there were more people than for some of the Sydney Thunder yeah. games. There was something like 15,000 crowd. Uh, admittedly, it was the opening game. Mm. I think it was a Friday night. But, you know, definitely good, good attendance. And... There was a real spirit about the crowd, I felt, as well. There was really engaged, rather than being sort of token, turning out, oh, we better turn up, it's the first game. There was real enthusiasm and passion there. And some brilliant cricket, the young leg spinner for, for India, who was bowling, I swear to you, 35 miles an hour, but had the most brilliant control of her leggies and googlies, and bowled Elise Perry, first ball through the game. She was on a hat-trick. Uh, it was just a lovely bit of mesmerising spin... 
Terry, of course, is now potentially out. Yeah. Uh, she's got injured. She's Australia's... I mean, when you talk about great cricketers of the last 10 years in the world, Lise Perry's got to be there, hasn't she? As, as, as much as, you know, talking about the men all the time, we tend to forget someone like her who's made double hundreds and is an opening bowler and has been so consistent for Australia in all formats. Oh, She's going to be out of a big semi-final, whoever it's against, it could be against England. That potentially could give England a, a huge advantage such an influential player. England themselves, I feel, haven't quite got their batting sorted. They can't quite figure out that the best order. They've tried Amy Jones at the top uh, and with Danny Wyatt. Now they've dropped Amy Jones down into the middle order and put Tammy Beaumont back up to the top. T20 puts teams in an interesting dilemma with their opening batsmen because that theoretically is the time when you want to cash in the power play, the six overs, when there's only two men out. That's the time when you think, right, we need to get 50 or 60 runs off those first six overs. Therefore, I, I need to send my best hitters in. But actually, sometimes the most difficult overs to bat are kind of 14 to 20 mm. or even in the middle overs. So you actually want your real batting maestros batting in those middle overs or even at the death where obviously there's more fielders on the boundary. And actually, it's easier batting in those first six overs because there's hardly anybody out on the boundary. So if you've just got people who can hit the ball reasonably cleanly, mm. you don't necessarily want to throw all your might into those first six overs. You want to keep some of those really skilled batters back for the last five overs can be the difference in making 120 and 150. Mm. And that, is, that, that 150 in the women's game is, is a winning score. What about the configuration of the tournament or the, you know, how the tournament's panned out last time the West Indies made the, the semi-finals this time it, it's South Africa if you go back to the last World Cup I know we're talking about 50 overs the same teams made the semi-finals in the 50 over tournament as made the semi-finals in this women's uh, T20 how, how are the rest doing? Coming up slowly Pakistan definitely are better than they were New Zealand, I'm surprised they're not in the semis. I mean, they're always a competitive team. They always have very good players like Sophie Devine uh, playing in the Super League in England, who, who are always dominant, Rachel Priest as well. So, and they're fit, you know, they're, quite, they're reasonably fit. I, I think fitness is quite a big thing in, in the women's game, becoming so more, as it, as it is obviously in the men's game. Spin also, and that's where England are good, because someone like Sophie Eccleston has got excellent control and she's a proper spinner really does give the ball a bit of a rip and it sort of zips and curves out of her hand beautifully spin is 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 quite a key ingredient as again as it is in the men's game in the women's game the, the spinners the control of the spinners especially on those slightly bigger grounds in australia is, is the key to it i sense that there's a a strong feeling for Australia to get to the final so that the, the, the crowd at the MCG for the final next Sunday is, is a vast one. They've sold 50,000 tickets last wow. I heard. I mean, they want to get it up mm. as many as possible. Yeah. I mean, I don't know whether people of that partisan, that if they've got a ticket in Australia and not in the final, they won't go. I don't know. But you sort of feel mm. Australia probably need to be in the final or it would it would help the tournament if Australia were and in the final. And they should be, shouldn't they? Because they've got, I think, 100 professional women's players whereas you know England have got what 20 or something and most of the other countries are about the same so you know they've got a better professional structure and let's hope actually for the women's game that Australia do get to the final because yeah they're, they're, they and India are probably the two best teams 
England. I mean, I probably that's perhaps a bit unfair. I mean, let's say those three sides yeah. are the best teams, and for the women's game to say half or three quarters fill out the MCG. Yeah. That is a real defining moment for women's cricket. Yeah. Well, don't forget South Africa. They did take down England yeah, I know. earlier in the tournament. I think England lost that rather than South Africa won it, really. Right, well, we're now going to talk a little bit about schools cricket, actually. And it features a former Lancashire and England fast bowler. What made me think of this is that uh, the news over the weekend... Mark Wood, unfortunately, failed a fitness test, so he's not going to Sri Lanka, and he's been replaced by Saqib Mahmood of Lancashire in England now. And a man with a very similar name, Saj Mahmood, I encountered very recently, a former Lancashire and England fast bowler, I encountered him coaching at a state school in Greenford in West London, and pioneering really quite an interesting initiative. This is a state school, William Perkin, and they've developed an elite cricket academy, which Saj Mahmood is the head coach of. And what they're basically doing is they've created this fantastic facility, which is a former corporate cricket ground. I think it belonged to Glaxo Smith-Klein a while ago, just on the M40, A40 going out of of London. Um, Lovely cricket ground there, which the school have built on. They've created a school, a new school, with fantastic sports facilities, indoor school, 4G pitch for football and hockey and all sorts of other things, this cricket pitch and cricket nets, and they're focusing on creating this elite cricket academy so that you can actually do an A-level almost in cricket. You do obviously do academic subjects alongside, but they're actually tailoring the syllabus so that you do your subjects pretty much in the mornings and you do cricket, all its ramifications, all the different departments of cricket, you know, both batting, bowling, fielding, but also fitness, tactics, things like that, de- different seminars on, on different areas of the game in the afternoons, which is, which is quite an inspiring idea and something with their, which they're hoping this school will catch on w- with other schools. I would love to have done an A-level in cricket. Yeah, and I an, would. And an O-level. And just play, well, just play cricket all afternoon, all, every day of the year, all, you know, summer, winter, whatever. Fantastic. And, and this is in a state school? This is in a state school. Brand new school, been there about 10 years, I think. It, the inspiration for it is Keir Smith, who is the headmaster, who's just a cricket-loving headmaster who wanted to see more encouragement given to state school kids mm. who hadn't got the opportunity to play all that much cricket. There's a lot of cricket clubs around the school as well who are making use of the facilities sort of weekends or in the evenings. But the, the focus is on finding kids from primary school schools, state primary schools, who haven't perhaps had the opportunity to play all that much cricket. Saj is going round, sort of in the West London area, finding budding players, people who show an interest, to try and tempt them into perhaps coming to William Perkin in the sixth form to do this specialist A-level. Saj Mahmood played 38 times for England, you might remember. Let's hear from him. The academy will just hit every single aspect of of the game uh, and just... Well, the, the physical stuff and the tactical awareness, the leadership qualities, they can always take that. Not If they don't progress and play county cricket or, professional, or become a professional cricketer, they can always take it into a working environment in whichever field they, they sort of choose to go into. So you're, you're stressing kind of academics in the morning and sport stroke cricket 
in the afternoon, which is quite an unusual arrangement for a state school. Yeah, definitely. Um, and to be honest, I wish I had that when I was a bit younger as well. A lot of the times you do school from nine till three or nine till four, and then you've got to figure out a time where you can go and then practice in, in, in this instant cricket. Uh, and that could be like seven, eight o'clock in the evening. Whereas at yeah, this school, they're actually getting that within school time, which, 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 I, think it, which I think is brilliant and, and it clearly works. It doesn't really affect the academic side of stuff. What, what are you finding in your uh, time in primary schools in terms of sporting ability of the kids that you meet? It's quite limited. Um, I've spoken to a few teachers uh, in, the, in the year and a half that I've been here uh, and a lot of them, I've said, well, what do primary schools teachers normally do for sport? And the one, one came up with that they just go for a walk for an hour which is not really improving anything other than just a bit of walking. Um, so for me to go into, into primary schools and we've got another uh, a, rug, a rugby coach at the school and a football guy at the school as well, for us guys to get into primary schools and just deliver specific sports and technical side of stuff at a very basic level, I think it puts them children in a very good place. Um, again, hand-eye coordination, just, just to understand the game at a basic level for when they come into into uh, secondary school, I think it's a fantastic place for them to be. Also, not many people speak about that, obviously it's a teen sport, so you, it's not just the skills you learn uh, technically, it's how you then can work in a team environment, um, what you need to do to succeed in a team environment, and you're giving them them, them, them sort of softer skills that they can then take away from sport and, and use in the wider, wider life. You, you said you wished you'd had that yourself when you were younger, so what was your sort of cricketing experience uh, in, in primary school and that age? Uh, primary school, non-existent, if, if truth be told. Even though it was a long time ago, it was, non, it was non-existent. Um, secondary school, we played fixtures. Um, Coaching-wise, again, non-existent at all. Um, I come from a, a state school as well, and there was no coaching whatsoever. We'd do a bit of football in PE, um, and then we'd have a cricket fixture on, uh, mid, in, in, in the middle of the week. Uh, and that was about it, really. Um, so I think what the school and, and especially Keir has got this massive vision of, of bringing cricket into, in, into the school, I think it's fantastic because it just allows state schools to then have access to that sort of stuff. Um, and hopefully if we can do this well and grow it nicely, we can then be an example to other state schools to just sort of roll this sort of programme out. So that's Saj Mahmood, the head coach at William Perkin Elite Cricket Academy, uh, he's sharing a flat with Ajmal Shazad, another former England fast bowler who's now the MCC head coach. And together they're looking out for the next young talent in London. They have a bit of a tie up with the MCC and Middlesex and the women as well. So the women are going to use the women and girls are going to use the facilities at William Perkin on a Sunday, which will give the, the, the Middlesex women a bit of a sort of headquarters to, to kind of develop their game. And it's interesting though, wasn't it, hearing Sash saying there that you know, he goes around the schools and asks them what yeah. sort of sports they're doing, what PE they're doing, and some of them are doing walking, yeah. and that classifies as sport. Yeah. It's quite depressing. It is, it is. I mean, my experience of it with, with my children is that if, if you want to do sport, it all has to be done outside of school. My my children have been in the state system, and you 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 know you have to join a club. You have to whatever whatever it might be, whether it's swimming or or netball or athletics. Those are sports that they did. You no, know, you have to go outside of the school. There's a bit there's a bit in school, but not that much. And in fact, in fact, if I think back to my own school days, which I know is you know pre-war almost, but 
at primary school, it, my dad was the person who got us to play. He used to come to pick us up, and it was I, it was a great advantage having having a father who didn't do a sort of regular job. So he was an actor, so he would often work in the evenings. So he had the day free. So he'd come to school with a big estate car, and we'd all pile in the back and drive to Gunnersbury Park, and we had our own little spot, and we'd play cricket mm. in Gunnersbury Park. No school cricket at all. Yeah, at primary level. Yeah, and I was. This is going back a long time now, but you know, in the seventies, I was lucky enough to go to a primary school, a state primary school, where the headmaster and one of the senior teachers were both cricket nuts. You, you, you mentioned there Kia Smith being a, a cricket fanatic, and you know it, it seems if it's come down to that, doesn't it? There are people who are interested in it will, will drive this forward, and that, you know that's where I got my love of playing cricket, of, of, of enjoyment from cricket, is because. I was encouraged by two people who who love the game, you know, who put cricket on. Who we didn't have great facilities, but they wanted cricket to be played, and and that's where you learnt it from the age of seven. That was my first experience of playing cricket at the age of seven from two teachers who are massive enthusiasts. And actually, my kids uh, have got their enthusiasm from a woman teacher who just turned up out of the blue, uh, loved cricket herself and came to the school in the mornings at 8 o'clock in the morning, state primary, mm. and did the, the cricket lessons in the morning. And she did that completely off her own back. It wasn't part of the syllabus. It was just something she wanted to do. And that got their interest or fueled their interest, which I obviously helped to, to uh, develop. But you do need people mm. to get these kind of initiatives going. And so congratulations to Keir Smith in particular for, for getting that going at William Perkin. He's now moving on to a new school in Ealing on the site of Barclays Bank, where Middlesex used to have their pre-season training, actually, and a new school is being built there, and he's hoping to try and do the same thing. I've also been, actually, to the Brian Aldridge Cricket Centre down in Sussex, just outside Brighton, and they're doing the same thing there. There's a state school with fantastic cricketing facilities. We went down there as a cricketer mob, actually, the Cricketer Magazine, to do some bat testing and met uh, Georgia Adams. That's Chris Adams' daughter, who's the sort of head coach down there. So, you know, there is sort of these stirrings of initiatives in state schools for cricket, which is great to see. If you want more details on the Elite Cricket Academy at the William Perkin, by the way, you can get it online. And what they're looking for are kids, girls and boys, who are really interested in developing their cricket and can go to a sixth form where, by the way, academically, William Perkin is sort of top ten in the country, state schools, for their academics, but they're really putting this focus on cricket as well. Okay, well, that's it for this week. Good luck to England in the World Cup T20 semi-final, whoever they play. And we'll be back next week where we're going to talk about the art of commentary. Or the practice of commentary. I'm not sure necessarily talk about the art of commentary, but perhaps the, the practice of commentary, what it's like to be in the commentary box, what you're trying to do as a commentator, how you prepare for your day, and what, what, what that day is like. We'll try and take you inside the, the radio and the television commentary box. Speak to you then. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.